Hello. Welcome. Whatever time of day it is where you happen to be, it's afternoon here on a lovely day. I think we have a high of 78 today. Nice for January. <laughs> I hope you're all doing well. Can everyone hear me okay? Great, all right, all right. <clears throat> well, I was just looking over these questions and we have some really interesting questions here. Um, uh, they're not only interesting, um, they can lead us into some degree of depth, uh, which uh, I always like to do. But I'm going to try to exercise a little skill in uh, trying. I, I could easily spend the whole time that we have here on probably the first two or three questions. I'm going to try not to do that. So, okay. So let me just switch to, um, let me just find the questions here. Where are they? Here it is. Okay. And <clears throat> the first one is from Jared. Uh, are you here, Jared? Yes, I am. Hello. Oh, good. Wonderful. All right. So um, you have a question about the Mahasatipatthana Sutta. And uh, particularly, uh, is, isn't it fascinating that there's this one refrain that occurs over and over? Uh, Satipatthana, uh, they, they tend not to say too much about this and that's the most curious thing because when the buddha repeats something over and over and over again in the same sutta that be pretty important right <laughs> okay i'm glad i'm glad that you recognize that this is where you know you he said his, his instructions are for each of these meditations is that you see this in yourself, you see it in others, you're, you're mindful of it in yourself, you're mindful of it in others, and you're mindful of it in both yourself and others. And um, so you ask, could you talk a bit about the distinction and qualities between how you see these ways of investigation and how they work together? Well, let me just um, begin by saying that it's that it is obvious to me that the intention in this sutta, which the Buddha himself kind of says, you know, uh, th this this is so powerful that somebody that does this can can come enlightened in seven years or seven months, seven weeks or seven days. 
So it's a powerful thing. And it's the uh, application of mindfulness to the body, to the Vedanas, the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, which leads directly into uh, mindfulness of mental states. Of course, in a sutta, the mental states listed are those that uh, are typical of meditation. But I think it's pretty obvious that the intention is all mental states, including subtle mental states, those that are constantly shifting. Just, and just, as, just as the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral are. Because mental states and Vedana are closely related. And then, of course, there is uh, the mindfulness of dhammas, of the content of consciousness, of the objects arising in consciousness. Uh, in uh, technical Western philosophical language, we would say phenomena. A dhamma is a phenomena. And, of course, in the sutta, the phenomena listed are all uh, dhamma. They're like straight out of a, of a, a treatise on right understanding. But it's all dhammas that you want to be mindful of. Now, sitting on the cushion is a really good way to refine the mindfulness skills and apply these mindfulness skills to the body and the feelings and mental states and, and phenomena. But it's not the place to really make deep discoveries about this. So this, this is a, a practice that's intended to be done uh, <clears throat> at least as much, if not more so, off the cushion. So basically what the Buddha is saying here is you observe these things in yourself. Uh, you observe your body as an aggregate. By the way, you, you notice there's a bit of a pun in that. Uh, uh, seeing the body as, you know, kaya, as, as, as kaya. And kaya has two different meanings in Pali that are closely related. One is the body and one is an aggregate. Okay? So it's seeing the body as an aggregate. So you can see your own body as an aggregate. But what happens when you get up off the cushion after doing these practices and you see a person? Do you see them as an aggregate? Well, not right away. That's a, that you have to do. Uh, you have to apply your mindfulness in a different way to see that a person is an aggregate. Now, you can do this you can do this with, with all of the practices there uh, and, and uh, body feelings, mental states, and, and dhammas. But one of the things that we know about ourselves is that we can see things in ourselves that we can't so easily see in others. So we could do a meditation on the parts of the body and then get up and see people and talk to people, your friends, fellow meditators, whatever, and you don't see them, you don't, you don't see their body as an aggregate, right? 
on the other hand, you can look at other people and you can see things in them that you don't see in yourself, right? You can see, for example, that uh, the body of another person as it is manifesting through action and speech, through facial expression, behavior, stance, and everything else, uh, is this very complex structure of many different parts interacting to produce a kind of um, a unique manifestation through that massive flesh and that mind uh, in, in each moment. So this is the kind of thing that you can see in others that is harder to see in yourself. But you take it to the third place and you say, okay, these things that I've seen in myself, I can see them now in others. These things that I see in others, ah, now I can see them in myself. And so see this in myself, see this in others, and see this in both myself and others. And this is true of all of the parts of the Satipatthana. And if you were to limit yourself to examining uh, yourself only on the meditation cushion, you would miss out on uh, so much of what is going to uh, bring truth to the statement at the end of the sutta that if you practice this, you might achieve awakening uh, uh, to third or fourth path, specifically, uh, within anywhere from seven years to seven days. So, uh, is that getting at what you were thinking about? Yeah, that, that definitely uh, clarifies things, and especially around the, the self and other. Um, one thing that, or one track I was also kind of thinking about too, is if there is ways of observing our own body and mind from a first person and a third person perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, the first thing that came to mind is like, you know, whether we're, we're trying to bring awareness to our situation, which kind of has a third person perspective or attention to something very specific, uh, which has a first person quality to it. But maybe I was, I was going down the, the wrong path there. No, uh, not at all. If we consider that awareness is mindfulness and attention is a particular faculty that uh, trained, trained attention and trained mindfulness work together in such a way that attention investigates what mindfulness finds significant, then this is exactly what's happening. And, and yes, you're absolutely right. Awareness or mindfulness is a it's is it it's objective it's not and and attention by contrast is much more subjective and and, and self-centered so when we bring mindfulness to the investigation of ourselves and use attention to uh, uh, further that investigation at a more detailed level uh, then in that sense, we are looking at ourselves from both the third and the second, our third and the first person perspective. Doing that with someone else makes it easier to do that with ourselves and vice versa. 
And that's the wonderful thing about it. Great, thank you. That's, uh, that's very, uh, very helpful. Okay, I'm glad, I'm glad. Yes. So, um, let's see what's next here. Maggie. Is Maggie? Uh, sure, Ladasa. Um, I just wanted to mention a couple things. One, um, it looks like the Patreon is actually not showing all of the questions that were asked. Oh, really? Because, yeah, I thought there was one from William Wallen that was first. Well, that's the, no, no, no. The one from William is was is is very recent. Um, yeah, that's okay. But, uh, but there's one from uh, Boris that, I, I don't know if Boris is here, but there was one posted from Boris on the 9th and that's not visible. Oh no, actually, sorry, that's, that's okay. That was a comment. Um, yeah, so is the next one that you see the one from Margaret? Yes. Okay. That's the next one I see. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, um, I was a little confused because I couldn't find some of the posts that, that you were responding to. Oh, you didn't find the one from Jared that I no, was- No, the one from Jared isn't showing up for me. Hmm. <laughs> anyway, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Uh, don't let me- uh, No, 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 that's fine. We want to make sure that we do this right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I don't know that Maggie or Margaret is present here. I didn't, I don't see, but- yeah, right a ahead. lot of times people can't make it to the actual call, but yeah. Okay. But yeah, I don't see her here either. I was just letting a note that somebody else says Paul Feesey shows us first. Yeah. Um, it's, like, it's strange. That's never happened before, has it? Yeah, it looks like they've improved the software. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, so what is the purpose of life? I've heard you say it's to have fun. I suspect you were serious, were you? Uh, yep, I sure was. Either way, I'd love to hear more. Um, sure, this it's one of these things that we could um, we could approach from a lot of different directions, and and uh, but. Um, what is, what is the meaning and purpose of life? I know you've all asked yourself that question. And you know what I, what, how many different convoluted rabbit holes it can take you down, right? But the, the, okay, let's take it from this point of view. Why do we care whether life has any meaning or not? Well, if life is meaningless, then it's not much fun, right? If life is meaningless, then it's very easily to get into some sort of, you know, very negative, nihilistic kind of, you know, nothing matters or anything else like that. 
if life has meaning, it becomes much more interesting. Now, how do we go about finding meaning in life? Is it something that's intrinsically there? You know, a lot of mythology is about the, the hero's journey. The hero was born predestined to make the hero's journey, right? And uh, still to this day, we, we love that idea. Joseph Campbell really expressed it very well. The hero's journey. And yes, it's full of struggle and pain, but it's, there's, also, there's also triumph. And um, it's an adventure. And uh, adventures are fun. So we, we create meaning in our lives. Um, and the meaning of life in the generic term is the ongoing evolution of the known universe and by extension, the ongoing evolution of suchness as a whole. Whatever that mysterious whole is that the term suchness refers to. So we're all the heroes. We're all potentially the heroes in our own journey. And that's what I mean about making life fun. So we're here to have fun. We're here to enjoy the experience of being alive. Oh, but the Buddha taught that all life is suffering. Well, let me just turn this off. But no, that's not really what he taught. No, he said that there is suffering in life and that's an inescapable part of it. He didn't really teach that all life is suffering. He taught that suffering in life is inescapable. It's a part of it. Right? So we're not really contradicting this when we're saying that the purpose, the meaning of life is to have fun. Now, what he it did, what he was saying, and what's really important, is that there is a certain amount of pain in life that you cannot escape. Birth is painful, sickness is painful, aging is painful, death is painful. But there's another kind of dukkha that we experience. And we can call that kind of dukkha, I like to call that kind of dukkha suffering to distinguish it from pain. Pain is unpleasant feelings of physical origin. Suffering is the unpleasant experience 
that is that arises in the mind. The second arrow analogy, of course, that for the uninstructed worldling who is struck by an arrow and then the mind reacts to that. And so the resistance to the physical sensation creates the second arrow of suffering. So pain or physical discomfort is the first arrow and the second arrow is pain of mental origin. But life doesn't, isn't just painful as in birth, sickness, physical injury, aging and death. Life is full of suffering in human beings. We suffer about things that we suffer in all kinds of ways. We suffer about things that will never happen. We suffer about things that have never happened. Uh, we, we can find so many different ways of suffering. We can tell stories, we tell stories to ourselves and everything else. But that's the suffering that's optional. And that's what the Dharma offers to free us from. So now, now we become now we become the hero in our own journey once again. Now life becomes fun. Yes, life has its ups and downs. Life has its trials and tribulations. There are physical, physical pain is an inevitable part of life. But the mental pain, whether it's in reaction to the physical pain or it's the mental pain that we just generate out of nothing, like jealousy, for example. There's no, there's no physical pain associated with jealousy except for what the jealousy itself creates in our body. You know, if you're in a state of jealousy, you may feel some physical pain, but it's secondary to the mind, right? So um, this, this is what I mean by having fun. We overcome the suffering part. Pain is inevitable, but the suffering is optional. As far as meaning goes, the only way that we can get to that place of being free from suffering is to attain to uh, a lot of wisdom. We see that we are not separate selves, that the idea of a separate self that gives rise to all of this suffering is an illusion, and that we're actually part of a, we're a process within a much greater process in a much greater whole, that absolutely everything is interconnected. Now, now we are doing a dance with the world, a dance with the universe, a dance with suchness, right? We're a part of the process. We're a part of the continuously unfolding process. Each present moment is, is the moment of creation of the future. And just as a dancer both initiates a movement and follows the movement of their partner, or if it's a group of dancers, of the dance as a whole. So 
we're now in the place of doing a dance with the wholeness of suchness as a part of it, rather than a self that is keeps wanting the the dance to go a different way, keeps wanting the music to be different, keeps wanting to move to a different beat, and gets all frustrated and upset about it. So dancing is fun, right? So that's that's just a few examples of what I mean. That um, that um, the achieving the goals of fourth path is to be able to live life and have fun. So the meaning of life is having fun. It's doing the dance. It's being a part of the whole creative process. Surrendering yourself completely till there's no self left and you are a part of the mysterious divine whole that unfolds. So that's what I mean when I say that. So there's some things popping up here in the chat. Um, was a discussion about a particular translation of the Satipatthana Sutta. Uh, well, I was discussing the, the Sutta. Uh, that's one Sutta that I've, uh, well, one of a, a small number of Suttas that I've gone to the trouble of painstakingly translating myself. And, um, but I think that everything I said about it is pretty consistent with uh, any decent translation. It's the interpretations that are different. So, um, and another one, if the mind can only experience one sense organ at a time, is it theoretically possible to crowd out physical pain by intending to experience every sense but bodily sensation? Uh, it, it doesn't work very well, but that's what we always try to do. You know, what, you, know you, you bang your knee and then you rub it. And the sensations of rubbing it help to make the pain go away. I mean, this is, yeah, you, you can kind of do it, but it doesn't really work all that well. Um, because uh, there's, there's no way that you can make all of those moments of consciousness be only of the sensation of rubbing. The rubbing has the advantage that it travels up to the brain by means of much larger myelinated fibers so it gets there quicker but it may be slow but the pain's going to arrive in the brain anyway so you know you know that if you've ever stubbed your toe or banged your knee or something like that so yeah it's uh it's uh it's something that that uh we do but it's not it's not the solution the solution is to experience the physical pain but not generate that second arrow in response to it. And it doesn't hurt to rub it or do something else that makes it feel better. You know, stretch it out after you've, after you've pulled it or whatever. So anyway, thanks for your, for your comments. 
Now, <clears throat> don't know about the rest of you, but in my in my uh, uh, Patreon screen, a question from Fyodor, I hope I pronounced your name correctly, uh, is next. Not here. He's here. Oh, is he here? Oh, wonderful. Yeah, okay. yeah I think maybe his microphone isn't working, but he's uh, in my screen, he's right above you. <laughs> oh, is he? Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Okay. Yeah, there's nothing above me on my screen. It's just blackness, but. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there you go. That's, ah, there, that's good. Okay, great. <clears throat> this is a long question here. I read the TMI and listened to some talks on SoundCloud where you talk about the true nature of reality. Uh, I agree on everything you say, but there is one contradiction that is still not clear. You have said that everything is interconnected and the nature of reality is that it is a process and it is whole and all-consuming, I'd probably use all-inclusive, but yeah, uh, people, aliens, basically everything, yeah. But you also said about the end of suffering and that one can choose not to suffer. Yes, right. What I cannot grasp is how suffering can be brought to an end if it is the same part of the interconnected whole as all other things. However, through practice, I really can see the change in my automatic reaction to phenomena, and I am more happy in daily life, but still I think suffering did not go anywhere. I just not, do not pay attention to it. Well, no, okay, let's, let's go on a little further. The main question is about depending arise, dependent arising, which originates from the question above. If everything is arising dependently of other things, including suffering and everything else, and we bring it to the topic of time happening at once, if the time is happening simultaneously, that means everything already happened and is here to depend on and leverage other phenomena, there's some kind of predetermination. So either you suffer or not, either you practice or not, and so on. All is as it should be, and the ability to choose not to suffer is leveraged by other phenomena, and this is pure coincidence that you came to practice and can make such a choice, and the fact that you are doing it will leverage something else, and ignorance can arise from that choice, especially when someone interprets your words incorrectly or you cling on your enlightened view concept. So if I do not separate anything from the whole, suffering takes place in a row with everything else. Um, does this sound more or less correct to you and comply to the teachings? Sorry for a lot of text here. Okay, <clears throat> now, first of all, we talk about the end of suffering for an individual person. Okay, and a person is, well, we'll just use the classic definition. A person consists of the five aggregates, and there is no self in the five aggregates, but 
the uh, the five aggregates of uh, any person who has not uh, achieved to the level of third or fourth path is experiencing um, a whole lot of suffering all the time. A five, a an individual, a person who has achieved to third path is experiencing a subtle kind of suffering, but most of the suffering that ordinary people are subject to is gone. Somebody who has reached fourth path, there is no more personal suffering. Now, there's still, you know, the eye was an illusion all along, but there's still a mind and there's still a body, and there's still pain. But the mind is no longer creating suffering for itself. So there is an end to suffering for a particular five aggregates with some kind of boundary. But that's an illusion. And now this is, this is what creates the subtle suffering and third path is that you haven't yet lost that that very deep sense of being a separate self but you have overcome all of the most common ordinary sources of suffering you you no longer experience craving for things of the sense realm You've overcome the uh, uh, the uh, defilements of uh, 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 you know of uh, anger and of desire, and so they no longer generate. Your mind no longer generates that kind of suffering. But by this point, you know that you are not separate. You feel like a separate self, yeah, but you know that you're not. So. Although you can bask in this <clears throat> remnant of selfhood, uh, which is a godlike experience, right? Uh, like being in the formless realms, being in the deva realms. It's deva-like, right? No more suffering. I can enjoy the sunrise. I can enjoy the sunset. I can enjoy all kinds of things. Uh, I can enjoy them to the absolute maximum fullest. But um, when it comes to, but I have no attachment to them. So I can enjoy them without suffering. Because when I experience these things, I'm not clinging to them. I'm not, I'm not thinking in the back of my mind, oh, this is going to go away. How can I hold on to it? How can I have it happen again? Things like that. But, there's still a world full of suffering, and I'm a part of that world for, uh, full of suffering. And I'm understanding myself as a part of it way beyond anything that the ordinary person can conceive of. So here is my dilemma at third path, and this is the subtle suffering that remains. The restlessness, the suffering that's associated with, on the one hand, being able to 
descend into that form realm of feeling like I'm a separate self, and then my mind can generate this happiness. But my wisdom knowledge is seeing the suffering around me and saying, that's my suffering too. Now that gets, <clears throat> that gets resolved with uh, the, uh, you know, with, with fourth path. That's, that's where we, uh, that's where we come to an end of this uh, personal suffering. But this is also where the concept of the bodhisattva in Mahayana arises, right? So now, at this point, then you take on, you take on the suffering of all beings in the same way that you took on the suffering of this five aggregates initially. Okay, so that's one, one aspect of this uh, question. My screen has changed. It's been going through, undergoing a bunch of changes. And we're, we're working on that. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay, I, I, I'd really like to be able to get back to reading the rest of the question. Um, at the moment, I don't have access to the question. Uh, you, if you, you might be in full screen mode um, if you look on the upper right and click exit full screen. Ah, that's where it is. That's what happened. Yeah. Yep. Good. It doesn't want to exit. Come on. Do it. Okay, good. Now I can go back to the question. Okay. <laughs> so... I think this is part of what your question was getting at, uh, Theodore. Um, how suffering can be brought to an end if it is the same part of interconnected whole as all of the uh, other things. Um, but the other thing that you're bringing up here is the you're you're interpreting dependent arising uh, from the point of view of determinism. There's a deterministic interpretation you're putting on that. Now, absolutely everything is due to causes and conditions. So that's the most, that's the first basic, most trivial level of understanding of dependent uh, arising of, of Paticca Samuppada. The deeper level of understanding is that everything is causally interconnected. And that the law of causality is all pervasive. Now, where the problem comes is if we think of causality in Newtonian terms, the Newton postulated that if we could just know the position and velocity of every particle in the universe right now, which was the first fallacy, uh, we could predict everything that would happen from now till the end of time, and that we could work backwards and see exactly how we got to here. 
So of the latter two points, on the first one, he was wrong. On the second one, he's right. We can work backwards following the laws of causality, and we are doing that. Scientists are doing that. Paleontologists are doing that. Astronomers are doing that. Um, uh, geologists are doing that. Um, CSI detectives are doing that, right? We can follow the chains of causality backwards to the beginning of, of the temporal perspective. Because the past is fixed, it is determined because it's happened, right? The future, though, is probabilistic. All of this causality is that it led to, leads to me right here in this moment, this body, my hands moving around, my mouth blabbering away and everything like that. Except that there is an element of uncertainty. Uh, that's the one thing that has, I mean, there's so many different ways to try to interpret uh, quantum mechanics in physics. But the one thing that nobody has ever come up with uh, a viable postulate to uh, get around is quantum uncertainty. Okay? Now, quantum uncertainty means that what happens may be determined 99.99999 whatever percent by uh, causes and conditions, but there is a, think of it as a probability space. In each present moment, there is a probability space. And within that probability space, there may be this part over here that's 99.9% deterministic. And this part over here that's only 60%, I mean, it's, we're assuming, let me put it this way. You've got a choice A or B. So over in this part of the probability space, maybe 99.9%. This part of this probability space is only 60%. There is a probability space. Each moment is a moment of creation. Each present moment. The next moment, after we have arrived in the next moment, then that moment has been determined. But it is not the case that some people, it's pre, predetermined from the beginning of time that some people are going to be free from suffering because they achieve uh, third and fourth path, and that some people are not. Now, probabilities uh, are, are the uh, causality says that there is a very, very high probability that things are going to happen in a particular way. But there is that element of uncertainty. There is that probability space. And what you have done in the course of your spiritual practice, meditation, and so forth, is a combination of causal, causal events, 
have led you to be in a particular place at a particular time that opened up the opportunity for you to learn to practice meditation or to study Dharma. But in your moment of arriving at that place, you have the choice of letting it go by or assimilating part of it. Once you've assimilated that first part of it, that increases the probability that you're going to assimilate more. You are creating yourself. And that's one of the things about this Dharma. That's the idea of karma as intention, that we create our future selves. If you wish to become a Buddha, then you need to learn to understand how you create yourself. And then you can work to create yourself in a way so that you become more and more Buddha-like all the time. Or you can just let the whole thing happen by accident. In which case, you'll end up wherever you end up. You may have some degree of wisdom or none at all. You may waste your life or you may, be do, some, may do something profoundly wonderful. Uh, you may live to be a ripe old age or you may die before you even get started. You can just let things happen at random. But if you're lucky enough to have causal factors bring you in contact with Dharma and meditation, and that possibility exists for everyone all of the time, that then you have, you have it's, it's not predetermined whether you're going to reach an end of suffering or not. And that's the most important thing about this Dharma, is that it's telling you what to do to change who and what you are in the future. You can move yourself closer to nirvana, closer to wisdom, closer to full awakening, or you can move yourself in the opposite direction. You can enslave yourself further to uh, desire and aversion. You can, you can make yourself uh, more and more attached to the illusion of this separate I. You can go either direction. But if you, once you get, once you touch into the Dharma, or once you've touched into meditation, then there is a there, there is an increasing probability that you're going to discover and understand this more fully, and that you are eventually going to reach that place of this personal, individual process that my mind thinks of as the five aggregates, right, uh, as a person, but in which there is no self, that it's really a product of all of, uh, of everything that's ever happened since the beginning of time. But amongst those everythings that have ever happened since the beginning of the time are the things that arise out of intention that are leading you into a direction of awakening and your own freedom from suffering. 
And then once once you realize it, when once you realize that individual freedom from suffering, and have at the same time realized that the only way that you can truly be free from suffering is to totally give up the idea of separateness. Well, then you have this the, the situation that's paradoxical for third path. How can I be free from suffering if I'm not separate from the world and the world is still full of suffering? You can come to you can come to that place of fourth path, which is a little bit more difficult to explain, but it is it actually is explainable uh, or describable, I should say. It's we can draw upon experiences that we've all had in order to get some kind of inkling of what that's like. But you can come. So I hope I've answered both parts of your question, Theodora. Theodora, I hope that I've understood, I've understood correctly both parts of what you were asking. That one has to do with how can one, how can there be an end of suffering for uh, Theodore uh, when Theodore is part of everything and, the, and that everything is still full of suffering. And the second part, as I understood it, had to do with the interpreting Paticca Samuppada as being deterministic. Okay. Wonderful. All right. I really... Uh, Thank you for that question. It's a good, it's a good question. Uh, Gianluca, I've just read the subchapter Insight, Emptiness, and the Nature of Mind in TMI. And my question is, how do we know that there is a thing in itself out there and not instead conclude that there's mind only? What is the role of inference in the Dharma and in understanding the world? What do you think about the philosophy of Kant, his relationship to the Dharma, and why he has not penetrated or exposed the illusion of self, since as far as I can tell, he understood that reality is mind-generated? Okay, so we'll take this a question at a time. All right. How do we know that there is a thing in itself out there and not instead conclude that there is mind only? Now, okay, there's two ways of looking at this. Um, how do we know that there's not mind only? So, one, is to say, okay, I create the word, my mind creates the world that I live in. And therefore, uh, move into a sort of solipsistic kind of thing. This is all my dream. I am the Brahman, the sleeping Brahman who is dreaming reality. And 
it's all just a dream. And therefore, what the hell, nothing matters. If I want to be a millionaire, well, you know, I just, uh, I just dreamed myself into being a millionaire. If I want to jump out of a top window of a 10-story building and flap my arms and fly, I just jump out and fly. And uh, I don't have to worry about falling on the ground, getting killed or broken to pieces. Uh, we can do that in dreams, right? I bet you've all done that in dreams. You've done, you've done things in dreams that in the waking world that you can't. So just that simple comparison, without getting any more philosophical than that, we know that whatever it is that's the source of our sensory experiences, out of which our mind creates our reality, follows its own set of rules. It doesn't do what our mind wants it to do. So we can just drop the solipsistic idea of my, my mind is all there is. Now, so then that brings us to the other way of looking at mind only, which is to say, that's idealism. To say that the idea that there is mind and that there is matter is a mistake. Because idealism says well, uh, matter is just a story that the mind makes up. Okay? Just like materialism says mind is just something that matter does when you, it's complicated enough, you know, arranged in, a, in the right way and complicated enough, like in the human brain or something. But idealism takes the opposite approach and says, says, there's no evidence that matter exists anywhere except in our mind. And emptiness con confirms that. But, it, but our experience denies the fact that our personal mind is the only thing there is. So now we get into mind only in the version of, there's the small m mind that, uh, that I consider to be my mind. And then there is this capital M mind that is out there that is uh, following its own rules. And my lowercase m mind, uh, no matter how much it wants to, can't violate the rules of the uppercase M mind that's out there. Well, what's the difference between that and, and you know, mind-matter dualism? It's big mind, little mind dualism, right? Okay. Well, there's actually a third approach, which is to say that, that uh, there is, there is neither matter nor mind exists, but rather there is something which from the outside looks and behaves like matter and we can describe the laws of it and study it. And there is something else that when looked at from the inside is experienced as mind and we can likewise uh, see that it operates according to certain laws and principles and, uh, and so forth. And that really it's all the same stuff. And then we can look at this stuff of suchness from the outside and we can say, wow, everything is interconnected in the material universe that even particles 
on the opposite side of the universe that have been separated since the time of the Big Bang, that if something happens to one of them, it affects the other one. That kind of, it's called non-locality, spooky action at a distance, things like that, okay? If there is this kind of profound interconnectedness in the material view of the stuff that is neither mind nor matter, then it must be similar with the, with the experience we have when we're looking at this stuff from the inside and experience it as mind. Now that being the case, well, we should be able to tap into the memories of beings that have lived in the past. For that matter, we should be able to learn to know the mind of others that are in, in this world now. Maybe even we could learn to see through the eyes of other beings who are at a tremendous distance. Maybe we could learn to hear through the ears of beings who are at a tremendous distance. Maybe the cities possible. So, um, how do we know there is a thing in itself? Well, what we know, what we know as Buddhists and what we know as, phenomena, as, as philosophical phenomenologists is that our mind is creating a world out of sensory input and that we run into a wall at what are called qualia. That's, that's the simplest form that sensory input can take. Blue and red are qualia. Salty and sweet are qualia. qualia. Uh, pleasure and pain are qualia. We can't, and these qualia are created by our mind. Blue does not exist outside of our mind, but something exists outside of our mind that causes our mind to create the experience of blueness or the experience of saltiness or the experience of pleasure, okay? So we know that what we experience, the dhammas, the phenomena that arise in our consciousness are empty of being what they appear to be. That actually the appearance that arises has more to do with the inherent nature of a human brain, the specific nature of our human brain, and the cumulative effects of every single experience, no matter how minute, of our entire lifetime. That has much, much more to do with the reality that our mind generates and we become conscious of than whatever the thing in itself is out there that causes the qualia of blue or salty or sweet to arise. So yes, there is a thing in itself. And whether, however you wanna think about that, if you choose to be an idealist and think that, okay, the thing in itself is some aspect of capital M mind, then that's fine. Go ahead, no problem. It's gonna work just as well. 
you know, uh, thinking that it is something distinctly different from mine doesn't work very well. And that's why Cartesian dualism totally fails on every ground, whether you examine it philosophically or scientifically or any other way. But that there is a stuff that is sufficient sameness that manifest both as the impossible to ever know thing in itself and the mind-generated reality that corresponds to that. And of course, what we're trying to do in the Dharma is we have a tendency which is strongly reinforced from the time we're born and the first time we begin to have contact with other human beings to adapt a consensual reality. So we're going to interpret all of our incoming sensory data, literally billions of bits per second, and we're going to reduce them down to less than 100 bits per second of conscious information, and that's the world that we're going to live in. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, that's, that's the reality of it. And what we do in the Dharma is that we, we learn that um, a really big part of our world, of course, is who and what we think we are. And if we think we're an individual separate self and that um, we live in a world of separate entities, and that it's our interactions with those separate entities that determine whether we're happy or, or uh, suffer. And if we believe that we can figure out enough about the thing in itself, if we can fool ourselves into thinking that, well, maybe the, maybe the phenomena that arise in my mind are empty, but they're close enough to what's out there that I can manipulate it successfully. Well, that's, that's the casino thinking there. Because the fact, like I said, the factors that determine the world that you create in your mind are mostly to do with the mind in itself. And so through the Dharma, what we can do is we can alter that perception that our mind creates. And here's where the inference comes in. As I started out saying, you can't jump out of a 10-story window and flap your arms and fly, except in dreams, okay? So this is, this is the beginning of inference. We, can't, we don't necessarily remain totally ignorant of ultimate truth, ultimate reality. We can learn a whole lot of things about ultimate truth and ultimate reality and by this, I don't mean, I'm not implying, and the Buddha wasn't implying, is that this human mind is somehow going to grasp the totality of ultimate reality because it just ain't going to happen. Or that this mind is going to know the paramount ultimate truth because that's not going to happen either. But by inference, we can move much, much closer to understanding the way things really are. Paticca Samapada. Everything is interconnected. Anatta. 
there is no separate self. It's a it's a it's it's just a confabulation of the mind that and that it causes us to suffer. Everything is processed. Everything is changed. And emptiness itself. The fact that the thing in itself is unknowable and is not the same as what the mind generates in consciousness, that is knowledge by inference about the way things really are. When you know that at a deep down gut level, then you have, then you know you're seeing things as they really are. You know an ultimate truth. The highest wisdom is knowing that you can't know. And that's another way of looking at, at emptiness. Yeah, somebody, has, uh, Katyayana has put uh, um, a quote here from Manjushri, you should never allow yourself to cling to preference for either the appearance side or the empty side, but you must take special consideration of the appearance side. Yes, of, of necessity, to live in the world, we'd have to. But that doesn't mean that we can't refine the appearances. That doesn't mean that we can't uh, refine the appearances in such a, a way that they align much more closely with the reality. And the much, the closer the appearances generated in our mind approximate the reality out there, then the better off we're going to be, right? And after all, what the Buddha is telling us is that all of our suffering is just the result of stories we tell ourselves. And the basic story that we base all of our other stories on is that I am this unique, singular, pretty much unchanging, separate self. You know, my body and mind might change over time, but there's this self in here, and that this self has needs and wants and fears and can be endangered and everything else like that. That's our basic story. And it's all about getting past that story. And then, then we can make up much more useful stories. And we still live by our stories. So the appearance side is where the suffering is. That's where the suffering is. So it's really the most beautiful piece of wisdom because it's not just about Pythagoras, it's actually addressing the very fact that in samsaric existence, which is dependently originated existence, that's that right. where the suffering is. And so in a sense, that's the whole coming back to the bodhisattva path that you were talking about. Yes. yes. Once we can understand these things by inference, then we can have a wonderful time. We can have a lot of fun being a part of the evolution of suchness to the point where there is no more suffering for sentient beings anywhere. Wow, what a game to play. Let's have some fun. Let's all become bodhisattvas. All we have to do is 
discard some of our destructive and unwholesome stories and replace them with more constructive and wholesome stories. And then the fun begins. So thank you, Gianluca. Uh, as far as why, how Kant was able to figure out all of this, but not recognize the emptiness of the self, um, you know, I don't know. There may be some scholar of Kant who has who's penetrated this to the depth that he can he could postulate how this got missed, but I'll tell you, um, he's not the only one. There, within the Mahayana, following the teachings of Nagarjuna, which are really clear, you know, and he basically states that anybody who's going to cling to emptiness is doomed, you know, um, uh, doomed to ignorance, you know, but Um, there are people who keep making the mistake of seeing everything else as empty, but me as real. Now that, remember I talked about solipsism, that leads you directly into solipsism. People still do that. You would, Kant, I remember being so impressed by Immanuel Kant, but I don't know how he missed that. But then I don't know how a bunch of uh, modern teachers have missed that as well. But they are, they're out there. They're out there teaching people that everything is empty, but still acting as though the self is real. So, can't answer that part of your question. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I could say that that in the unfolding of causes and conditions, there were some some powerful causes and conditions that didn't manage to escape some probabilistic component that said that they would take the wrong fork in the road and and somehow believe that the that the self wasn't empty. <laughs> I would say the more wedded somebody is to the idea of this self being something that is reincarnated and exists for a long time, the more firmly wedded you are to that belief, the more likely you are to uh, fail to recognize the emptiness of self. On the other hand, Kant wasn't, uh, I don't, as far as I know, Kant had no uh, indoctrination and the doctrine of reincarnation. So that couldn't have been his problem. Anyway. Let me just check, see if there are any other interesting comments that came up from that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with, uh, Ted's uh, comment there. Thanks, Ted. <laughs> okay. Paul Feezy. Hi, Paul. You Hi. there? Hey. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's good, good, good to see you. Good to see you. You too. I was just reading your uh, application for the future training courses, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that must be fun. Uh, it, it's, it, is, uh, it, it is fun, but it's daunting. The number of applications we have. I bet. <laughs> okay. Let's look at your question here. Um, I had what I think was a third significant cessation past type event after two past previously a couple of months ago, after which things have changed quite a bit. One of the biggest changes that has remained so far is almost a total dropping away of all the urge to see. That urge diminished a lot after second path, but this is different. Motivation to sit and meditate has basically gone. Part of that is because meditating was partly fueled by the seeking urge in the past, but also because the quality of focusing attention on the breath seems to be an act which creates a subject object where there doesn't need to be any. Things feel quite lovely overall, and there is still an interesting quality of equanimity that hasn't seemed to fade, despite not meditating almost at all. As it's still, as I, I think that's I, as I would have in the past. But things are definitely not complete, so to speak. There is still restlessness. Could you comment on this, please? Is this a temporary phase? I'm practicing mostly Dzogchen Mahamudra type, looking as much as I can all the time off the cushion. Is there anything else? How to proceed when it's clear there is nothing I can do? Can you also comment on the dynamics of attention awareness and the higher paths? As it seems like the relationship to attention needs to be different as it is, seems as it seemed linked, at least in my observation so far with the self and process. Okay, so there's a, we're asking a number of questions here. It's more of a thread of questions than a question. So let's go back here. Sure. First of all, the falling away of motivation. Okay, that's, that's not an uncommon thing. Uh, I, I had a pretty difficult life. So this happened to me after stream entry, that things were so good, you know, but what, what more, <laughs> what more could I want? Uh, and that lasted for a while. And then um, what is actually the whole point of first path happened to make me aware that there was no such thing as uh, a, a mental state of, that was truly satisfactory, so long as there was any kind of craving or self-clinging folk. And so then I got back on a cushion and got back to work. On second path, there was kind of a rudderlessness, that's the way I describe it, a rudderlessness. It's like, it drove everybody around me wild. It just, it was so frustrating to them, you know, 
hey, would you like to do such and such? Or you want to do such and such? And it's like, I couldn't make a decision for the world. You know, it was just, hey, whatever. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. You know, um, so it's either going to give me a chance to work on work on the remaining self-clinging and, and uh, craving that I have, or else it's just going to be good in some other way. But no matter what, it's going to be good. Any kind of a rudderlessness. Um, you know, the, your description of third path is a little bit different in, in a couple of uh, relatively minor ways. You seem to be focused more on the quality of equanimity um, rather than the joy that comes from being able to uh, experience the world without craving. Um, but it seems to be having the same effect. Um, just uh, this, this phenomenon that we're talking about, this is a temporary thing. It's going to go away. It's, it's uh, yeah, you don't, you don't need to worry. Uh, it's, if, if you haven't actually made that transition to the third path, then, you know, it's going to become clear and you're going to do the last bit of work you need to do on second path and you'll enter that, you, you'll fully enter into third path. And yeah, there might be this feeling of, yeah, nothing left to do associated with. And if you're there already, then what's going to happen is that the, there will be a continued ripening until you, um, uh, once again, your motivation comes back because you're going to, I mean, that restlessness, the restlessness that you talk about, that is the dukkha that's generated by the tension between craving for being and non-being, by a craving for uh, what's sometimes referred to craving for form and formless uh, realms. But it's ultimately craving for being and non-being. And you're going to come up against that full force, just like I came up against the, the, the point of first path and second path and third path. Each one has its point. You're going to come to that place, and it's going to bring lots of motivation back, and uh, and then you'll continue to work. So you don't need to worry about it. One of the things that this discussion reminds me of, it's not quite what you said, because you you already recognize that that things aren't you you've already felt that restlessness, which is which is a positive indication, but there's something that can be associated with any of these paths and can arise not just right after path attainment, but at any point in the path, including when you're right near the end of the path, is, but it most commonly occurs early in path attainment. And it's a feeling of, wow, that's, that's it. This, this, this is it. I'm there. I'm done. And the most amazing thing that I've seen is people make posts on uh, internet discussions saying that that's their definition of fourth path. That you've achieved fourth path when you have that feeling of, 
I'm done. There's nothing else left to do. I, I, I feel sorry for those folks, but I know that they'll get over it because it doesn't last. <laughs> that feeling of doneness is a is a, a, a temporary kind of thing that that happens. But um, let me make sure I'm addressing the different parts of your question here, because I know quite a bit. Um, is this temporary? I've answered that. It is. And practicing Dzogchen, oh, well, let's back up a little bit. You say, focusing attention on the breath seems to be an act which creates a subject object where there doesn't need to be any. Um, one of the things for you to reflect on there, Paul, is, that is in order to function in the world, your mind's going to always be creating this subject object uh, illusion because that's it, it just has to it's just that you know it for what it is you know that's it you just know it for what it is and so um, if you're doing that kind of meditation and you're experiencing this I'm making a subject object duality where there isn't really one well then that's the important that's the important teaching of the moment is that ah here here's what my mind does and here's what it's going to keep on doing every time i have to function in the world it's going to do that and after a while it you know it, it becomes just this automatic thing that you have absolutely no attachment to no objection to you know it's just like hey you know that's the way i stay alive my heart keeps being pump 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 you know Way I'm designed, and, and you can, you can. Uh, so, I would I would suggest that you actually don't uh, don't turn away from that, but actually, you know, apply the apply the mindfulness that you have to your mind's reaction to the degree of wisdom it has assimilated and the experience it gives rise to when you do that practice. Now, you, later on, you're saying that you're primarily doing Dzogchen Mahamudra type practice. And uh, I would, my comment to you would be, that is really very, very appropriate for where you are. It is super appropriate. Uh, a lot of my practice is, is still that, just, um, you know, so, so that you're on a good track there, but, but don't lose the opportunity that this other experience is, is offering to you. Um, how to proceed when it's clear that there's nothing I can do. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and this is related to, can you also comment on the dynamics of attention, awareness, and the higher paths, as it seems like the relationship to attention needs to be different, as it seems linked, at least in my observation so far, with the selfing process. Okay, so that's what we're going to deal with here. Uh, how to proceed when there's nothing that I can do. Okay, what you're doing now is, what doesn't, pass away. One of the, one of the uh, um, 
fetters, the, the principal fetter that falls away with fourth path is the conceit I am, okay? What it is, is that, that semi-emotional feeling, that very primitive sense that, uh, that I am a separate self. And that's what you're undoing, okay? Now, one of the ways of deconstructing that is there's the agency part, and then there's the uh, observer part, okay? And what happens is that there is the falling away of the illusion of an agent. Now, agency continues, but there is no agent, okay? I mean, the Buddha, anybody that's achieved fourth path, they still are exhibiting agency. Their body and their mind are still uh, an integral. I did, it's doing the dance with suchness that I talked about. It's manifesting agency, but there's just, there's no longer an agent. And so that's what you're, that's what you're getting in touch with. That's what, and that's great. That's wonderful. Yeah, there's, there's nothing that this vestigial sense of I can do, because this vestigial sense of I is an illusion. There is just, there is just the unfolding, and that will become clearer and clearer. And as far as the observer component, same thing is going to happen. That it's just there's no longer any kind of sense that that you know that if there's this immutable witness that's just observing, sensing, experiencing things happening. There's going to be, you know, in the seeing, only the seeing. Just as in the doing is only the doing. You know, you decide to walk to the store. That's agency. But in the walking is only the walking. And in, in the seeing, in the hearing, in the feeling, everything else is only the feeling. In the thinking is only the thinking. So, in a lot of ways, nothing really has changed except the illusion falls away. But at the same time, there is a huge change because that illusion falls away. Right? Yeah. Like I say, now, now this, this mind and body becomes an integral part of something that is much greater and more mysterious than it can grasp, and uh, yeah, that's where you're going, so. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, so all of these things that you're saying are really, they're, uh, they're, they're quite positive, and uh, yeah, don't be troubled by them, because you're, you're, you're on a good path, and you're working out well. Well, it's 428, and uh, I try to limit all my one-hour sessions to an hour and a half. So, <laughs> uh, so we'll have to address these other questions at, at another date, okay? But um, I've very sincerely enjoyed my time with you, and uh, I hope that uh, 
I hope that I've been able to share some things that will, you will find of use. Um, um, yes. Best wishes on your journey to awakening. Yes. Even though you're already awakened, you just don't know it. <laughs> All right. Thank you once again. Oh, and thank you very much for your support on Patreon. I want you to know the book is really taking off now. I'm getting some time for you. And I'm really enjoying it. So thank you. Thank you for helping make that possible. Bye. Okay. Until next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.